This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, this is The Breakfast Grill. I'm Keith Kam. Yesterday, December 10th, was recognised as Human Rights Day, commemorating 75 years since the United Nations General Assembly's adoption and proclamation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. On The Breakfast Grill this morning, we will take specific stock of Malaysia's track record on how it handles refugee affairs, all the more important with the increasing number of conflicts we are seeing today. For that, we are talking to Dr. Melati Nungsari, who is an Associate Professor of Economics at the Asia School of Business. Welcome, Melati. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. At the start of this year, Human Rights Watch called on Prime Minister Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim to step up the pace of legal reforms to better protect minority communities and freedoms. Uh, its 2023 World Report highlights how the previous administration, led by Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri Yaakob, saw authorities aggressively cracking down and harassing refugees and migrants. What, if any kind of improvements, have you noted in the course of this Madani government's watch in the past one year? Some of the hits and misses, if you will. Yeah, so I think there has been, uh, <laughs> as of most of the Madani policies, some good stuff and some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. I think me and basically everybody working on refugee rights has sort of been hoping that the move to legalize refugees to work in this country would be faster. Um, there have been sort of, you know, sayings that things will be happening. And there was, I think, um, some talk about them being legalized uh, for dirty, dangerous and demeaning jobs or 3D jobs. Um, but nothing really has um, moved that much since then. So I think a lot of progressives who have been hoping that the government does more have sort of been waiting and nothing has quite happened. That incenses me a little bit, but I want to get into that a little <laughs> bit later. Uh, one, one piece of news that stood out uh, just before the 15th general election last year uh, was Malaysia's government at that time. They threatened to shut down the UNHCR office here. It accused the UNHCR of issuing ID cards unilaterally. So Putrajaya wanted to take over this, this job, but this did not happen. What is the situation like now? Yeah, so um, maybe just to recap a little bit. So Malaysia did not sign and has not signed the UN Refugee Convention. So right. something that the Pakatan Harapan government 2018 actually did promise to do in their manifesto. So the only sort of legal recognition that refugees have in this country is through the UN Refugee Agency, which has an office here. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the point is that I think there were you know some... Uh, maybe public pushes um, that sort of caused the government to sort of think a little bit about the role of the UNHCR in here, um, in this country. But um, as far as I know, nothing has been kind of concretely being done to shut them down. Now, I would like to point out, though, that if the UNHCR office does shut down, this this will cause massive amounts of chaos for refugees as they also deal with resettlement. Um, so as people already know, probably Malaysia is sort of an intermediate country for refugees. We uh, let them stay in this country at sort of the kind of mercy of the the process. So the idea is that eventually they'll get resettled and UNHCR is actually the agency that facilitates that. If the UNHCR were to be not here, what's mm. the worst case scenario? Would, would they be sent back to the countries from which they came? Um, That's a good question. To, to, to a place of conflict, somewhere they've been fleeing from. Yeah, so that would essentially happen. And I think what we would see more of are people basically with no status who do not even have a UN card to basically say, you know, look, I am somebody running away from persecution and uh-huh. I actually have sort of a right to be here by international law. 
So according to UNHCR's numbers, Malaysia currently hosts some 183,000 refugees and Correct. asylum seekers. Uh, just to put that in context, that's the number of voters that we have in the entire state of Berlis. <laughs> <laughs> so in more than two trying, people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if, if you're trying to contextualize that. Um, right. 85% of them are, for, are from Myanmar, mainly because I reckon, you know, the... the close. Yeah, the, geographically they're close. Yeah. The fact that we are not a signatory for the Refugee Convention and the 1967 Protocol, what is the significance of this? How important is it? Because when I look at it, it's 1951. It's, uh, you know... A really long time ago. Yep. Yep. So countries basically that sign and ratify these uh, international conventions basically have kind of responsibility to the international community and to refugees to basically legally recognize their status. Okay. So as of now, Malaysia does not have that. So we basically let them in and they kind of live in, you know, people talk about this gray area quite a bit where there is some amount of recognition from the UN cards, but there's no sort of formal assimilation into the Malaysian community. Um, and therefore, they don't get access to education. They don't get access to, you know, you and I get uh, free or almost free public health care that does not exist for them. Kids can't go to school, can't work legally. So they're open to all sorts of, I think, issues with regards to legal precariousness. So this 183,000 refugees and asylum seekers, these are the ones with the actual UNHCR these are be, they are cards? Be, yes. So these are the ones who are basically who have had the refugee status determined. So a big function of UNHCR is issuing the cards, but they only issue the cards to basically people who um, the UN deems as having refugee status. So you actually have to fulfill certain criteria in order to get the cards. And, you know, th- people like the Rohingya, who have been ethnically mm. cleansed from Myanmar, various groups from the Middle East, like Syrians who are fleeing war. Um, so basically, the UN share actually looks into these claims of right. refugee status and then determines whether or not it's legitimate or not. Do, do we have any idea how many are here but who are not registered and what mm. happens to them? Mm, that's a good question. So my understanding is that uh, UNHCR is sort of has a capacity with regards to how many people they can process. Right. So there is a queue. Um, I do not know exactly how many people above the 180,000 is currently in the queue. So, I mean, this is basically just an international legal definition on who Correct. qualifies as a refugee and, and the obligations that the host country has to yes. has to observe uh, to, to keep them safe here. Yes. But um, our domestic laws should be just as important, right? I mean, how align are domestic laws to protect mm. these refugees and asylum seekers here? That's really that's a really great uh, question. So um, maybe if I could backtrack a little bit. So there is another international uh, law kind of, which people have heard before, called Universal Declaration of human rights. So Malaysia has actually ratified that. And in that it has, you know, for example, I think Article 23 is right to dignified work, for example. So Malaysia should actually be obeying this because we signed it, right? So that is one thing. But the issue with refugees in Malaysia is that they are actually sort of seen as illegal migrants um, because we don't actually recognize the refugee status. So that brings a host of issues. I think, with regards to, you know, how they're treated in the country. And that's the same as being an undocumented migrant, which is the uh, PC term for illegal immigrant, right? Correct, correct. And so that would be a situation where if you're... um you came, for example, on a work visa and then you overstayed and then you become, you know, quote, illegal or undocumented. Essentially, you do not have legal presence in this country. So in this one year of the Anwar Ibrahim administration, have you gotten a sense that things might change for the better? I mean, I'm still very, very hopeful that we can collectively as a society push for legal work rights. So I'm an economist, so I tend to believe that a lot of problems can actually be solved if we actually give people access to markets, so economic mm-hmm. opportunities. And so I feel that 
as much as I would like to push the government to sign the refugee convention, I think we do not have to sign anything to actually be decent, a decent society. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, well, people will say like Malaysia didn't sign the convention, therefore we cannot be, um, we cannot, you know, acknowledge or give refugee human rights. I think that's, that's a bit... Uh, Insensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a bit ridiculous, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. And so I think there's a lot of things that can happen. I would just like them to, to see it happen. And if we, we can talk, you, when you started, you mentioned, you know, conflict and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, currently so many Malaysians, um, which has been really nice to see, are very supportive of what's happening in Gaza right now. Right. Um, and are very supportive of displaced communities. And so I'm really hoping that if there's any time for Malaysia to act and recognize refugees, Palestinian refugees, for example, who are here already, this would be the time. See, that's the thing. When it comes to conflicts in Palestine mm. versus what's happening in uh, mm. Western Myanmar, mm. there seems seems to be a, a disconnect. Oh, yes. A, a, a big difference. <laughs> Correct. Um, because I, I, I don't know. I mean, my thought on this is that, you know, Malaysian politics today is mm. very, very race-based. And it basically, is. it's a thin it line. Is. It's really a thin line between what Malaysia's, Malaysians think and xenophobia. It is. Right? It is. And, and actually, we, we I have personally actually done studies on, on this. And so you, you sort of uh, see, for example, that stereotypes that Malaysians attribute to different refugee groups are quite different, right? So yeah. if you're fair-skinned, you're Arab, um, you tend to be a little bit more accepted, I think, rather than Rohingya people who on the outside sort of um, are darker-skinned, you know, can be kind of confused, I think, oftentimes by Malaysians for Bangladeshi migrant workers, yeah. which sort of brings in the sort of economic competition dimension as well. And so there definitely is racism based in all of this. And I think there was a lot more of a hardline approach towards this community, especially during the various MCO periods. Correct. Uh, you, they were specifically you, targeted, yes. Yeah. Do you get a sense that this has, has improved somewhat? Um, so I think the aggressive targeting by the government ha- does not has now sort of no longer existed. But we still know that, you know, for example, refugees still get detained and still get put into immigration detention yeah. and still face a lot of problems of enforcement. So even though there's not aggressive, direct, specific targeting, I still think the system is still not set up to accommodate their human rights. Going back to what we were talking about just now, you know, the difference between the treatment of Rohingyas and, mm. and refugees from Palestine and, mm. and, and Syria, mm. what can we as Malaysians do to, to change this? So I think one thing is to really just read up more. And I think Malaysians are very capable of this because you know we, we've all seen the atrocities committed by Israel in the you know Gaza conflict right now. And I think we just need to make sort of one more step to connect that to the reason why people run away from countries. I guess it's because, um, you know, uh, social media is so active in, in Palestine is. and Gaza, but not quite so in uh, Rakhine State, I suppose. Yes, yes. And uh, to be very honest, um, Rakhine State has sort of almost been completely ethnically cleansed. So I think the Rohingya population has already moved out either to Bangladesh or to other countries. Or even the situation at Cox's Bazaar is, mm. is deplorable. Yes, it me. is. It is pretty, pretty awful. And I think one thing that we should realize is, in a sense, Climate change will actually make this much worse, right? So Bangladesh is a very climate change prone country and mm-hmm. it currently hosts, you know, in Cox Bazar itself, over a million Rohingya refugees. And so what's going to happen when flooding increases? Uh, what's going to happen when people get displaced from various parts of Southeast Asia to other countries? I think we should start thinking about this a bit more strategically rather than, you know, trying to kind of protect what we have because I don't think it's going to make sense in the future. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Dr. Melati Nungsari, who is an Associate Professor of Economics at the Asia School of Business in conjunction with 
with Human Rights Day that's celebrated annually on December 10th. On the other side of the break, we look at pressing issues facing the refugee community here and how some kind of clear framework is sorely needed to address them. BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. We have Dr. Melati Nungsari, who is an Associate Professor of Economics at the Asia School of Business, in conjunction with Human Rights Day that's celebrated every year on December 10th. Now, Melati, the reality is that Malaysia has no laws to acknowledge refugees in the country, mm-hmm. yet in actual reality, they are here, we see them. Yep. They've been surviving day in and day out. I cannot grasp this. Yep. Uh, how are they here, yet not here? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a great way to put it, here but not here. So, um, I mean, you know, when you're thinking about this, right, I think you can kind of put yourself in situations, okay, so imagine you're a family and you're the dad and you need to pay bills, right? And yeah. so you can't legally work, but you have to have money because you can't buy food and you can't pay for anything anything if you don't have a job. So you work informally. So what a lot of, I mean, most refugees who work do in this country is basically work informally. So when you work informally, um, there are a variety of issues that can happen, especially if you are also sort of not formally counted, right? So people are what we call hidden. And so, you know, you're kind of open to more abuse. Sometimes you can't even get specific jobs because you can't open a bank account. So how do you get paid? There's no protection at the workplace for you. You tend to work at more dangerous situations. So you basically are opening up, you know, a pretty big population to a number of terrible things that could happen to them while they're just working and trying to pay bills. Do you hear of cases, a lot of cases where exploitation happens? Absolutely. So in 2018, we actually did a representative study using Rohingya refugees who work in construction as basically um, the sample. And we saw, you know, tons and tons of human rights violations. So people Mm -hmm. were not paid for a long time. There were a lot of accidents at the workplaces that were basically hidden from the police. There are all these, you know, terrible situations where you lose a limb um, and then can no longer work. And then, you know, what do you do, right? And so we basically saw that informality for the refugees because they do not have any legal protection, can be very, very terrible. Malati, just before the break, we were talking about the current government mm. making some effort to mm. get them into the workplace Correct. to at least give them some formal jobs, but the jobs are the 3D jobs, Correct. dirty, dangerous, difficult jobs. Yeah. Where's this heading? Yeah, so that is a proposal that everybody keeps on talking about right now, which I think actually is both doesn't really make sense, so a bit nonsensical, but also one that actually imposes quite a lot of costs on the government itself. Because I think the proposal right now is to not give blanket work rights, which is to mean refugees can just legally work in this country, but is to say, if you're a refugee, you can, for example, legally only work in a plantation or you can work on construction. So very specific type of sectors. And so when that happens, you actually have to track them. So that's sort of an additional cost in the government to basically track them for specific sectors. And you're also kind of pushing down the ability of the labor market to adjust, right? So what I mean is that we actually have a number... I mean, despite popular depictions, we actually have a number of refugees who were CEOs, who were doctors, who were engineers in their home countries and just can't practice here. And so to tell this group that is incredibly talented that they now have to work these terrible jobs, to me, doesn't make any sense because they could be contributing just like you and I do to the Malaysian economy. Is there some sort of engagement we can do with the government to, you know, acknowledge this as well? Yeah, so I think a lot of sort of NGO and CSO groups have been doing quite a bit of engagement on that. But I think one thing that helps as well is to sort of make a little bit of noise to your local representatives. So Mm -hmm. MP or Adun, write into them. And I think because you know, politicians are elected by the public, they have to care, I think, to some extent. Yeah, we are the bosses, yeah. Yes, correct. And I think we should use that power because... 
Yeah, it's I, what we have. This is something I still cannot uh, grasp. I mean, they mm. have no legal recognition. They are in effect persona non grata, meaning Correct. they also have no access to public services, healthcare, no. education, and as you said, financial services as well. Yep. What concerns me is, you know, if they travel around without documentation and without paper, without a- anything legal. No, I see. No, right. yeah. The authorities can just pick you up yes, at, 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 their, at, their, at their whim. And this happens very often. This happens very, very, very commonly. So basically what um, they are then, if they are caught by the police or anything like that, the police, I think, has a right to ask for your IC or identification. And what they'll be able to produce if they are registered with the UN Refugee Agency is a UNHCR card. Now, Malaysia as a state does not recognize that as a legal document, right? Okay. And so what happens during that interaction is it really just depends on what the police person or the legal enforcement says in that time. But typically, you know, you'll be taken to the police station. Some people are then brought to immigration detention centers and it becomes this like, you know, huge thing. So for example, in a number of my studies, I've met women whose husbands go out to work Mm -hmm. and then they just don't come back one day. And are they dead? You know, what happens, right? And so imagine like a family with a mother and kid just waiting for the husband to come back and then maybe weeks later realizing that he's probably stuck in an immigration depot somewhere. Oh, this is mind-boggling. Is there any legal recourse for them? What laws protect them? So there is not really. Um, I think there are sort of individual groups. So I think Lawyers uh, for Liberty, I think Asylum Access um, does quite a bit of work in trying to get people out. But really just there's no kind of legal framework to work with. So it's really based on individual sympathies and sort of what happens on an individual basis. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, Malaysian laws don't Mm. just protect Malaysians, they protect people who live in this country, right? Correct. So are they covered by this? Um, No, so they are not. Um, So they're sort of, again, in this not citizen, but not quite legally recognized grey area. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so, I mean, going back to Malaysia, not being a signatory to the Refugee Convention, I think in Southeast Asia, only Cambodia and the Philippines are, Correct. right? Thailand isn't. No. Nope. Yet, uh, what I read in Thailand is that they do they accord certain, but they do accord certain rights to, say, yes. refugees, including allowing children access to education. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so, where children are concerned, what's stopping us from doing that? So, if you remember, I think a couple years back, well, a couple governments back, when um, <laughs> Mazli Malik was the education minister. There was actually a push whereby he said something like, you know, anybody basically can register for public school. Right. Now, when we actually went to ask people on the ground what actually was happening, it did seem that that policy was never really put into place and that kids of, you know, stateless children, kids of families without documents were still not able to access this. So instead of going to public schools, they go to what we call alternative learning centers. So these are like CSO run or NGO run, but these are very under-resourced. So imagine like a community getting together perhaps or an NGO coming together and trying to educate these kids. Now, to me, I think this is an even bigger human rights violation, which is basically not letting kids, children who have no control over their, their fate or their fortune, basically deny them access to education, which I think is really terrible. What about healthcare? Um, so they pay the foreigner rate. Previously, there was a, I think, kind of like a insurance scheme that was available to refugees by the UN Refugee Agency, where they would pay a small amount of premium and then be able to access public resources, public health resources for 50% mm-hmm. of a discount. But I believe that has been discontinued. So currently, um, a huge number of refugee individuals actually suffer quite a bit from not being able to access health or not being able to pay 
If we go back to education just a little mm. bit, I hear bits and pieces of news that certain refugees who want to seek tertiary education, they pay yep. a, a discounted rate. But I'm just curious why this can't be accorded to, to uh, you know, so, younger children. So the issue is that for a lot of refugee communities, so the Rohingya specifically, at age 15 is sort of when people drop off. So you you don't really quite reach kind of like higher levels of education because you don't even complete basically high school. And so the number of people actually get to university is very, very, very low in this country. And the people who complete is, you know, almost close to zero. So um, it's a huge issue and something that keeps on going on. Now, if you note, I think one thing that kind of negates the fact that, you know, we think about Malaysia as sort of this intermediate destination is that it is true. We do not have a formal resettlement process into our country and they're supposed to be resettled to, you know, the U.S. The UK, Australia, countries like that. But, but, that's, but reality that, that's a, is. But that's a UNHCR responsibility. Yes, right? that is. Yeah. And, and currently they have, you know, okay. the idea of having a UNHCR card is you get processed as part of resettlement. But the reality is that these people live here for whole lives. Like I've met Rohingya refugees who've been here for 20, 30 years. And so how can you deny somebody a life and existence as a person mm. for that long? I think that's an incredible failure of us as a society to let this happen. So if we are looking forward, this current government has done one year. They've mm. hopefully got four more years to go. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say needs to be addressed to actually have laws in place to recognise refugees and asylum seekers in this, this country? You know, like I said, given the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, for one thing. Yep. Yeah, so I really truly believe, and this is why I'm really pushing, is I kind of have very little hope that we will sign the Refugee Convention within the next five years. So let me just put but it's that no longer there. that important, right? But it's not that important. I think what we can do without signing that is actually let people work legally and let them work in jobs that suit their qualifications. Now, one thing that people always ask me is like, oh, Dr. Mlati, what will happen if we let all the refugees work? Will it you know, bring down our wages and stuff like that? I mean, the reality is, again, 180,000 is a large population, but compared to the Malaysian workforce, it is like a tiny drop in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So assimilating them um, economically will probably, and I'm pretty confident to say, have zero effect on the local labor market's wages. And so I don't think we need to worry about that as much, but granting them security at work, um, dignified work, I think will really improve their lives quite a bit without much cost to us. There was also a proposal for a special pass for Palestinian refugees. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I personally think it's very reactionary. Yes. Uh, why not for other Why not refugees? everybody? So, so yeah, so the thing that I, I find it a bit, again, like I, I just feel like we haven't made that final step. It's like there are Palestinian Palestinian refugees here who have already run from the atrocities yeah. committed. Why are we not doing something for them? Sometimes I feel like, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's to us, it's sort of like if you're Jaudi Mata, it's sort of better. But if you're close, then it's not. So, <laughs> so that is something I think we need to examine a little bit as a society because we should be caring and doing something in places that we can, which is home, here. Lawmakers and the government aside, what do you think corporates, private companies can do to help if they can? Mm. So I think that there is quite a number of actually ongoing uh, corporate sponsorships and stuff like that for specific training programs. But then the issue is like, okay, so let's say you've trained a refugee how to code and they know how to do all this stuff. Then what? Like, what jobs can they get? If there's no legal framework for them to work, then you can't actually progress further, right? And so I think for the benefit of, you know, corporate social responsibility, I think there is definitely a very big push here with regards to 
trying to get the government to at least acknowledge legal work rights. And it also also aligns with all this, you know, nice corporate stuff like ESG and DEI and stuff like that. Looks so, good on their resume. It does. It does. <laughs> and so, you know, and I think the thing to realize is that a lot of multinationals based here, their headquarters in another country has already probably been hiring refugees, right? And so it's not that much of a stretch, stretch. I would say. So, so yeah. Malati, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Thank you. On the Breakfast Grill this morning, we were talking to Dr. Malati Nongsari, Associate Professor of Economics at the Asia School of Business in conjunction with Human Rights Day. BFM has also conducted several conversations on refugee and asylum seeker issues. Just search for them on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Keith Kam for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.